Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, author of the novel Missionaries. Our crack producers, Adam Kamara and Alex Brooklyn of Racket Media. And our guest today, distinguished author of fine writing for numerous fine publications, Jeff Schullenberger, who is a senior lecturer at NYU and the proprietor and lead author of Outsider Theory, a website purveying theories of the outsider, I believe. Jeff will clarify all of that. That's that's about right. Uh, theories of the outside, theories of the outsider, outsiders doing theory, and so on. <laughs> okay, cool. we like it. And I am, uh, as always, Jake Siegel, slumming angel, knocker off of tall hats, here today with hat in hand, um, because I I feel humbled, frankly, by the task ahead of us, which is to discuss Herbert Marcuse's repressive tolerance, and then after that, Kafka's short story, The Judgment, two monumental works, though in different ways and for different reasons. Um, before we get into them, Jeff, I think I had read a essay you wrote on um, a growing right-wing affinity or, or a certain strain of right-wing and particularly Trumpist affinity for critical theory um, that I thought was very insightful. I'm forgetting the name. You'll remind us of the uh, title of that essay. Yeah, it's called Theory Cells in Trump World. And it theory is Cells in Trump World, yeah. On the um, aforementioned outsider theory. Yeah, excellent uh, essay. And it resonated with me. You know, the, the affinities between critical theory, which I think we'll have to explain, um, and right-wing philosophy and right-wing politics at the moment it is something I've been interested in for a while now. And uh, so actually, let's start there. So we're talking about Marcuse, who most of you I'm sure will know as a cultural Marxist, since that's the preferred term these days, uh, as I understand it, but was <laughs> technically... Well, if that, that's the preferred term by who? Uh, technically a, a member of the Frankfurt School. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, the, the cultural Marxist has become a, a derogatory term or a slur or a slander or something or another, but actually... Uh, you know, it's it goes back well before it got picked up uh, by right-wing critics of Judeo-Bolshevism or cultural infiltration or whatever. It was actually started on the left. Um, cultural Marxism was something lefties were using to refer to each other, sort of post-Marxist theory in the 80s. But So the, there's the Frankfurt School that Marcuse comes out of, and then there's critical theory more generally, and... Um, Jeff, why don't you take a crack at, at explaining to a smart but maybe not technically educated listener on what those two things are? Mm. So the Frankfurt School, which is what uh, Herbert Marcuse is sort of one of the younger figures and the one who 
essentially um, ends up spending much of his career in the United States um, is uh, an institution that is something like a think tank almost that was founded with some essentially new wealth that was generated in the early 20th century in Germany and was sort of endowed as a, a space for intellectuals to theorize modern society. It's probably best known for being a, a place where um, Marx was taken very seriously and the members were all to some degree or another Marxists, but they shared um, a general lack of support for the, you know, really existing communism of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. And they were also heavily influenced by Freud, as well as other eclectic figures. And they yeah, also Freud were, and, and Heidegger, right? Was and a, Heidegger as well, yeah. And they well, yeah. Uh, wasn't um, Marcuse was a student of Heidegger's or, or uh, assistant to Heidegger, and then they sort of broke over Nazism, right? I mean, yeah they they were definitely, um, shall we say? I mean, initially they were essentially, in some sense, rival schools or schools of thought, but they definitely learned a lot from Heidegger in the sort of twenties and thirties. And, I think the um, point for an introduction, though, is yeah. to build on what you just said, that they are uh, schooled in both a Marxist and German philosophical tradition, yeah. uh, anti-totalitarian, um, right. and they, they become particularly in the guys they take as exiles in America. The Frankfurt School becomes uh, kind of the leading critical theory model for the left-wing or putatively left-wing critique of technological modernity, right? right. And right. so there's Marcuse, there's Adorno, Horkheimer, all of them are thought of for the most part and, and not exactly uh, with perfect fidelity as figures of the left. And they're incredibly influential and all of the agita and like – you know, conservative paranoia over uh, the infiltration of the cultural Marxists and this this sort of panic over cultural Marxism, which, you know, I I think that there are pernicious ideas coming from the left. I think there are uh, plenty of pernicious ideas filtering through the universities and all that. But the idea that Marcuse and Adorno and Horkheimer are uh, kind of had cynically plotted all of this out as a way to undermine Western civilization is pretty bizarre and misses mm -hmm. something that I think is really fascinating that Jeff picked up on in his essay in a more concrete way, which is that they're not really left-wing figures by modern standards of the left. They're certainly not progressive figures in that they are explicitly skeptics and critics of progress Mm -hmm. And so the turn from being figures of the left broadly to being f figures, I, I think you could say at this point, not of the right, but I, I think that the right actually has more affinities with certain prominent strains of critical theory than the left does 
at this point, or at least an element of the right has that. And the reasons why, uh, the, you know, the causes of that shift in valence are fascinating and we should get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Marcuse's essay, 1965, becomes uh, a kind of signature piece of writing. And this is an after one-dimensional man, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, 64 is one-dimensional man. Yeah. 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 Which, I mean, you know, it's sort of funny because, I mean, look, my my guess is that you – are not a fan of this particular essay. I mean, that would just be my guess going into this jig. Um, but there's a lot of stuff in Marcuse that I suspect you would like, or that would resonate with certain aspects of your thinking. Um, I mean, he's an interesting figure. Uh, well, the reason I'm so fascinated with this particular essay. And I, I said, I think before we started recording, I felt like I had so much to say about it is that my feelings about it have changed. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I still find parts of it, bafflingly stupid uh and, and sort of um yeah. stupid is the i don't know the term of art but. <laughs> there's a, there's a there's a certain naive yeah they're right so, they're and, and naive, we can get into it i think naive there maybe. are other parts not, of it though yeah. that i think are incredibly prescient that i mm-hmm. find mm-hmm. apply uh with terrifying accuracy to the current moment and yeah. to the current media estate and climate. Um, and, and I want to, I want to pick all that apart, but Jeff, why don't you take a, a shot at broadly outlining the major themes here? What's, what is this idea of repressive tolerance that Marcuse is getting at? So as I understand it, there is a comparison of the notion of tolerance as a liberal value that enabled uh, certain, shall we say, dissident and progressive factions in sort of early modern times through the Enlightenment to assert themselves over and against, you know, church, monarchy, and so on. And that in that instance, tolerance was a fundamentally progressive um, value because it in not not because it was in and of itself progressive, but because it enabled this uh, strain of rational analysis of society that is identified with the Enlightenment to progress beyond the the repressive conditions of you know the the sort of late let's say late medieval times, and his argument is that that no longer holds. And that the primary function of the value of tolerance is to suppress or repress um, progressive forces by giving free reign to essentially repressive and what he calls regressive forces. So his position is essentially that tolerance or pure tolerance, which was once a liberal and progressive value, has essentially become an illiberal and reactionary value because it enables illiberal and reactionary forces, which he essentially identifies with the 
totally administered society that the Frankfurt School had diagnosed as the sort of endpoint of rational modernity. Right. And, you know, his, his critique is very much aligned as much of his work in this period with the new left and the, um, you know, you might think about him in relation to something like the Berkeley free speech movement, which had cropped up just a year before this was written. I think his prescriptions, especially yeah. his idea of what yeah. can be done to break out of repressive tolerance is yeah. most clearly aligned with the new left. But just to provide, I think, a clarifying analogy, reductive but clarifying analogy. Look, we've all heard consistently in the last few years uh, a certain strain of media criticism, mostly from progressives or progressives and people on the left in general, right, that a certain kind of centrist even-handedness in regards to Trump or in regards to writing about police violence effectively serves as a handmaiden of, if not fascism, then state repression, right? And so if you are uh, describing, if you're trying to give equal time to whatever Trumpist pronouncement and then the fact-checking, the good authoritative fact-checking of the Trumpist pronouncement to say nothing of the refutation of it, that that operates under a pretense of liberal objectivity, liberal tolerance, yeah. but is the undoing of authentic tolerance, right? right? And so you could see how powerful this idea is in that it exists in almost unaltered form as a, a meme in the culture right now. I mean, yeah. we don't call right. it repressive tolerance anymore, but Wesley Lowry had a an op-ed in, I think it was the Times, uh, like a year ago where, you know, he's writing about, um, uh, reporting on the police and it, and it, you know, I think effectively he's the first one that, that comes to mind for me, but it's a, a fairly representative idea of a, a kind of pernicious version of tolerance, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can I read a passage that, I mean, was one that I noted precisely because it was, yeah, please. Something go ahead. that could have been written very recently. Um, you know, and this is, he's explaining essentially the problem with tolerance as that it gives equal time, in a sense, to regressive and progressive views. So he says, all points of view can be heard the communist and the fascist, the left and the right, the white and the Negro, the crusaders for armaments and for disarmament. Moreover, in endlessly dragging debates over the media, the stupid opinion is treated with the same respect as the intelligent one. The misinformed may talk as long as the uninformed and propaganda, or sorry, as the informed, excuse me, and propaganda rides along with education, truth with falsehood. So that sounds very much like an argument we've heard made many times over the past four to five years. Right. Right, right. And also, I think it's probably worth talking about this in terms of his sort of broader vision of, like, what is happening in society, right? So, like, one of the things that's motivating the Frankfurt School is, you know, they're Marxists, but the kind of Marxist theory of history didn't really, like, hadn't really worked yeah, out exactly. in the way that it was supposed to, have, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is one of the ways, one of the reasons that they turned to Freud to sort of try to understand why, um, you know... <laughs> Uh, history hasn't progressed the way that it, that it is supposed right. to. Right. And 
they sort of recoiled from the kind of second international positivistic view of history, which kind of utterly crushes any notion of like human subjectivity, Mm -hmm. right? And instead found that kind of what happens in modern capitalist society is like everything is sort of subsumed into the system, right? Yeah. And so uh, you, you know, uh, the kind of Freudian like pleasure principle starts to, to take precedence over the reality principle because that sells better mm-hmm. uh, among the capitalist forces. And I, I mean, I think like the pleasure principle taking play sort of taking precedence over the reality principle would be a good way of describing Twitter. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and even sort of like everything becomes commodified, right. Even what is supposedly uh, what is supposed to be, you know, kind of revolutionary, um, you know, the sort of revolutionary rock and roll song, you know, easily transforms into the sort of background music for a commercial for sneakers, right? And there's a bit in One Dimensional Man where he says, the music of the soul is also the music of salesmanship. Mm -hmm. Exchange value, not truth value counts. On it centers the rationality of the status quo, and all alien rationality is bent to it. Yeah. And so he's looking at this and seeing the sort of power of it and essentially the ways in which an increasingly affluent capitalist society um, and a democratic one, which he has some sort of tart criticisms about that. Um, You know, he refers to totalitarian democracy. So Um, that's interesting though, because I think he gets that phrase from J.L. Tallman, who's a great liberal Mm. historian who Mm. I'm almost certain coined the phrase totalitarian democracy. And I, I, I was just rereading that book, which I, um, so I wrote my senior thesis as an undergrad was on the possibilities of a, um, revived 21st century totalitarianism. And my, the basic, uh, premise of this dissertation I wrote, and that's what I read the Talmud for was that and I was very much influenced by uh, Camus' book, The Rebel, in part, but it, that the totalitarianism uh, is the instantiation of a, a universal human impulse that goes back to the the beginning of uh, beginning of time, right? The the desire to dominate everything and to rule over everything and to master human nature by destroying humanity is a very, very old idea. And to become God by uh, replacing God is a very old idea. And so the the kind of point of this paper I wrote in college was that, all right, well, the ideology has been defeated. Nazism's done. Uh, you know, the Soviet Union's done, but the machinery lives on. And so what's it going to mean that this, machinery, the state machinery of totalitarianism survives the uh, bureaucratic ideological machine. And the thing is, when I wrote this, the last place I was thinking about this applying was the United States of America. I was thinking about it purely and I was thinking about it in terms of, uh, you know, the, the possibilities of totalitarian Islamic societies that, you know, techno caliphate. I was thinking about it in terms of what would replace the Soviet union. I was not thinking about it in terms of America. Now I don't think that America is a totalitarian society at the moment, but I do think that totalitarian democracy 
um, is not a bad description for a very powerful influence or a very powerful impulse in American society at the moment. And Marcuse's idea that the liberalism has this ability to absorb all of its antithesis um, and that it liberalism, liberal tolerant society has this ability both to neuter the opposition, um, which is contained within the whole because the opposition is rendered ineffective by its relationship to the integrated system of capitalist administration. Uh, I, you know, not only do I not think that's wrong, I think that it's, it, it becomes only ever more powerful as a corporate surveillance economy fuses with the state, which I mm. think is what we're seeing happen right now. And that's the part of this that strikes me as deeply, deeply, um, you know, relevant to say the least. That's me putting my cards on the table. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's relevant in a, a number of different ways. So kind of going back to my um, piece about critical theory and the right, you know, what, what struck me there was actually, and this is a bit of a digression, but you'll see where it's going, was actually um, Andrew Breitbart's um, autobiography, where he, he kind of elaborates one version of that, you know, cultural Marxism Frankfurt school sort of conspiracy theory that, that you brought up before. And, um, but what's interesting about it is, you know, he gives this account of the, you know, what, what he considers the kind of total domination of liberalism, right. That, you know, that, that his sort of insurgent, you know, conservative media plans to, to fight against, in a way that even though part of his claim is that the Frankfurt School kind of provided the ideological basis for this domination, which is, which is an odd thing to read because, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not, um, it, it's, it's, it's strange for him to see them as aligned with the very thing that they were in some sense, dedicating much of their energy to attacking. But at the same time, he, almost explicitly kind of aligns himself with them in the way he understands his task as one that has to um, see the way that these allegedly neutral institutions and um, norms are actually highly biased, right? Which is essentially Marcuse's argument here, right? So what Breitbart takes as his as his uh, mission, as he explains it in that book, is really quite similar in a sense, because what he's saying is that all of these supposedly, you know, and it's it's not a totally original argument to him, right? The sort of biased liberal media thing is not something he invented, but yeah. but his his analysis of it as utterly pervasive and exerting this kind of totalizing domination through the full spectrum of institutions and particularly in the ways that they represent themselves as, as neutral or in some way objective, um, is, is very much a, uh, a sort of, um, cribbing of some of the major themes of the Frankfurt school that you see Marcuse working through here. 
So that's, that's kind of an odd way that, you know, again, it, it has these, these unexpected resonances with more, more recent, um, thinking and not necessarily just on one side or not necessarily, um, you know, in, in ways that are consistent with a particular position in the, the yeah, sort of I mean, current if, culture wars because, and debates. Right. Because it's fundamentally a critique. And I'm talking about the Frankfurt School broadly here and critical theory broadly, not just this one Marcuse essay. It is a critique of the machinery of bureaucratic control. And it's mm-hmm. also a critique of the yeah. human type produced by that machinery. And that's where I think it's weakest. So mm-hmm. the Adorno authoritarian <laughs> personality stuff, I think, is very mm-hmm. silly. The machinery mm-hmm. of control, I think, is quite trenchant. And you could see how that could easily be picked up by any political party who's out of power, right? Yeah. It's- yeah. yeah. But, but also, like, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> There's always the temptation to want to repress anybody you don't like, yeah. right? Um, you know, I, uh, to discuss tolerance in such a society means to re-examine the issue of violence and the traditional distinction between violent and nonviolent action. The discussion should not, from the beginning, be clouded by ideologies which serve the perpetuation of violence. And my immediate thought was of Sam Harris's first book, where he claimed that some propositions are so dangerous that it may even be ethical to p- kill people for believing yeah. them. Right. Did he really write that? Yeah, yeah, that's from the end of faith. Um, they, he wrote that it would be acceptable to kill people so, just for having the beliefs. This is a this is a direct quote. Some propositions are so dangerous that it may even be ethical to kill people for believing them. So right. So Marcuse says almost exactly. He, the same he later thing. walked that back because it's insane. But um, yeah, but it's not. It's know. not. Uh, it's insane. But it's not inconsistent with the thinking coming from either of them. It's not inconsistent with Harris's kind of hyper-rationalism and neither it is, mm-hmm. is it, so the, so the, one of the fascinating things about Marcuse is he's both critiquing a system of totalizing power and suggesting an alternative system of totalizing power. Right. Um, and, and, and seems almost totally unaware of this contradiction in a in a yeah. way you could only explain like through some Freudian or Lacanian or whatever the hell psychological approach or as uh, a, you know a I, I don't know it's like some bifurcation that I I just find it hard to imagine an intelligent person wouldn't have recognized that but on the one hand he's critiquing the mechanisms by which. Um, you know what? I'm sorry. Let me back up a second. What's interesting about the way he frames tolerance that I think leads into this other point is that – so he's critiquing the pretense of liberal tolerance and liberal objectivity, but he actually picks up J.S. Mill's telos of tolerance, which is um, you know, the one of the kind of foundational – liberal ideas of tolerance and and epistemology, not the only one. And so it's significant that he picks up Mills, but basically his idea is that the telos of tolerance, like the purpose of tolerance, and this is an exact quote here, the logic of tolerance, which involves the rational development of meaning and precludes the closing of meaning. So in other words, the reason to be tolerant is that that's how you get to the truth. 
um, uh, reasoning people arrive at the truth. And what he shares with Mills that he doesn't necessarily share with other liberals is the idea that there is a truth. There is a definite truth towards which the proper kind of tolerance guided by both guided by a truth he already possesses and directed towards this greater truth uh, is going to arrive at this like singular conception of the truth and the good. Right. And that's not the only, and we'll get into more of this later, but, but that's not the only conception of why you would be tolerant in a liberal society. It is the Millsian one. And so it, it begins with that premise, right? And it also begins with the idea that essentially you need a, not an educated citizenry, but a, a citizenry capable of, uh, like engaging its own reason, freed from the, the kind of totalizing machinery of the media. Um, yeah. and yeah, so, so I'll come back to this in a second, but I wanted to set that point up with Mills because it's interesting that he, Come, he takes that same premise, you know, that yeah. that there is a truth that you're progressing towards. It's not obvious to me that like a Heideggerian would think that way, right? right. So, so he says, so the telos of tolerance is truth, right? Which which Alistair McIntyre later disagrees with him and says um, the telos of tolerance is not truth but rationality, mm-hmm. right? Um, Certainly we value rationality because it's by rational means that we discover truth. But a man may be rational who holds many false beliefs, and a man may have true beliefs and yet be irrational. What is crucial is that the former has the possibility of progressing towards truth, while the second not only has no grounds for asserting what he believes, even though it is true, but is continually likely to acquire false beliefs. I find that equally Um, wrong, to be honest with you. Right. Well, so let's talk about that in a second. So he... um, uh, for Marcusa, the telos of tolerance is truth. It's a singular truth. And then he says, um, so freedom is still to be created even for the freest of the, uh, of the existing societies and the direction in which it must be sought and the institutional and cultural changes, which may help to attain the goal are at least in developed civilization comprehensible. That is to say, they can be identified and projected on, on the basis of experience by human reason. Right. Um, and he seems to think that we um, have a much firmer grasp on truth and the truth is more of a sort of unitary thing than I think it is. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is, you know, something that comes through here that differentiates him from, I'd say, the new left as it eventually develops, particularly in academia and its sort of later academic incarnations is he shares this idea of, of mass culture that you get in dialectic of enlightenment and other Frankfurt school writings where it really is just a kind of brainwashing apparatus. Right. And it's, it's so effective and powerful that the majority of the population is just hopelessly deluded um, and kind of, um, you know, living in the state of uh, this sort of world of illusions and, and ideological falsehoods. And, you know, later on you get a sort of, um, you know, cultural studies, which, uh, you know, in many ways disputes this and um, celebrates pop culture as something that 
you know, in this sort of populist vein as something that, um, average people can kind of make their own meanings from. And I think that's actually the much more influential understanding of, uh, you know, and, and it's why sort of Marvel movies can be regard are generally regarded as progressive and, or at least potentially progressive and so on. So, you know, that's, that's an aspect of this that I think differentiates him from the sort of strains of, of progressivism today that would, that would accept some of his arguments. Um, his, You're his saying that the progressivism of, today would embrace the mass culture stuff. Yes. I think they would embrace the more cultural studies view that, um, so pop culture is not, is not inherently, um, you know, in the service of the, uh, ruling class and is something that, that average people can kind of um, find liberating and find their own meanings in. And, and see, so I think on. it's totally schizophrenically occupying both positions. What I like about Wesley Yang's term for, you know, whatever we're calling the kind of woke progressive doctrine, uh, and he calls it successor ideology. Yeah. And what I think is good about that term is, um, as he himself has said, it is, uh, unfinished right yeah. it is in in transit in in uh, an interim stage and so what i see is you had this period where mass culture was thought of as a brainwashing apparatus uh, you know you think of like the graduate going to plastics young man um yeah. and, and that was a, a kind of new left thing that the entire system of culture was just there to make you replicate your parents' bourgeois values and join the war machine and all that. Then you get the critical, what's it called, uh, Jeff? Cultural studies, critical studies? Cultural studies, yeah. Cultural studies where it's like, hey, pop culture is actually, can be liberatory. And if you do this subversive, close reading of the text or whatever, actually the Golden Girls yeah. is a critique of patriarchy, yada, 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 right? And now what you have is both of them coexisting opportunistically so yeah. at, at one moment you know uh a movie the joker comes out right and or uh what joker the joker i forget but whatever that movie comes out and that movie exists to uh provide a uh systemic justification for incel mass killings or whatever right yeah um and then another movie comes out or, or a beyonce record comes out or whatever and um, can be celebrated, but there doesn't yeah. seem to me to be any well, black, 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 black Panther would be the one that amused me because it's like, <laughs> it's, it's a movie about the CIA uh, right, right. teaming up with like an African monarch to put down a revolution. Right. Uh, <laughs> so that's a very good idea of like, or a good model of the kind of liberal capacity to, absorb the symbols and tropes of radical opposition. There's a great term for that. Um, and it comes from uh, Paul Pacone, who was the founder and editor of the American uh, Journal of Critical Theory called Telos Magazine. And yeah. my, in my opinion, the if there is a kind of missing figure in the modern intellectual history, it's Paul Pacone. Because Pacone, who starts off as a Marxist, takes this idea, this critique of bureaucratic society and the totally administered society, and he completely divorces himself from all left, right, anything. And he develops a very interesting uh, 
approach. And Tebos just becomes one of the most interesting journals around. But anyway, Cohn had an idea uh, or a concept, artificial negativity, right? And artificial negativity basically refers to the way that capitalist bureaucracy generates its own forms of opposition in order to uh, return to an equilibrium, right? Mm-hmm. So the 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 system itself, I mean, it's like the matrix, right? Is uh, The matrix has to produce a certain number of neos and some kind of drama of resistance or else the system collapses in on itself. And Pacone had a rather more sophisticated, less Keanu Reeves-centric theory for capitalism. Um, but I think it's it's not wrong at all. But 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 but, but the, the products of our era as we are, we can only reference it in terms of a blockbuster movie. Listen, right? the first one was a great movie. I mean... The, <laughs> it is a really yeah. good movie. I, I went back and rewatched it, and like my memory of how good it was had been tainted by having seen the others. Right. They get progressively um, worse. I was like, no. This is really, truly a phenomenal action film. Anyway. Um. So, Jeff, why do you think in a broader sense that, uh, you know, Breitbart is one person, right? Why do you think the right develop? And you you talk about other people, Darren Beatty, who worked in the um, Trump administration. And, you know, Beatty, not incidentally, uh, he gave the thing he got kicked out of the White House for was giving a speech to the Mencken Society. The Mencken Society was founded by Paul Gottfried, who I wrote right. a profile about for Tablet, in which you know one of the th- Paul Gottfried was a student of Marcuse's, yeah. studied with Marcuse, devotes a chapter to him in his memoir. And one of the things that's interesting about Gottfried and that Gottfried imparted to the American alt-right, in part from Telos, actually, where he was an editor in the 70s, um, is this, what he got, I think, from Europeans through Telos was this interest in critical theory. And and now it recurs. So how, how do you understand that apart from Breitbart? What's going on there? I think on some level there's a there emerges a a demand for a more systemic kind of approach to critiquing. Again, that, you know, there's the longstanding notion of being in some sense culturally disempowered by the dominance of liberalism in the sort of, you know, what the Althusser calls like the ideological state apparatuses, right? The, 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 um, the, the institutions that essentially kind of, culturally and ideologically reproduced society, right? The right sees itself as, as largely booted out of those and, and sort of in exile from them. And so it, it responds to this in various ways, but I think it, it becomes clear to some people on the right that the sort of models they have for understanding how that works and what its significant is, significance is are not very, um, you know, perhaps not very helpful and also that, that that means that the sort of approaches that they have, they, that some of them begin to feel are not, are not really effective. And I mean, particularly I would say because, and this really links to, to Marcuse's argument here, right? Because they previously, the, the sort of popular version of this argument was to appeal to the sort of neutrality and fairness, right? That the liberal state is supposed to have, right? That it, that it is supposed to 
um, you know, as, as Marcuse discusses critically, sort of value all sides equally and so on, right? So the, the, the criticism of that sort of liberal bias was, was largely framed in terms that were essentially accepting of the, the liberal framework of neutrality, of sort of value, value-free sort of neutrality and objectivity and simply saying, you need to live up to these standards more, right? You need to, um, you know, have 50% conservative faculty at universities or whatever. So I think my, my sense of it is that some on the right begin to see what a futile argument that is and, and that it's not going anywhere. And so some of them begin to look for more systemic means of, of critiquing this phenomenon and also of thinking about different ways of, of resisting it or pushing back against it. Um, and so I think that's, that's how I would understand the, the appeal that this kind of material starts to have. Yeah. I that think it, that's it, does, it does push against the, the sort of liberal frame of, of neutrality. Right. And we see that really clearly in, in, um, in Marcuse's essay. And it allows somebody interested in power to escape from a kind of uh, culture war hamster wheel. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially as the right begins to feel it's losing one battle after another, um, I think that becomes more important. There's there's something else, and it occurs alongside this, entwined with this, with what you're describing, and that is uh, the right recovers a critique of capitalism that actually, you know, we've been conditioned by the kind of post-war fusionist right in America to, to think of conservatism in terms of its most libertarian pro market manifestations. But there's an older version of the right, uh, particularly a pre-war version of the right that's an end a European aristocratic version an American Southern version that's, uh, much more skeptical, hostile to capitalism as corrosive of tradition and of hierarchy. What will you do with your time? I've got a job in Ripon. I said I'll start tomorrow. A job? You do know I mean to involve you in the running of the estate. Oh, don't worry. There are plenty of hours in the day. And of course I'll have the weekend. What, what is a weekend? And uh, some of that comes back as well. And some of it comes back in a kind of uh, pernicious aristocratic manifestation. And some of it comes back in a, I think, um, more engaged, more tempered attempt to understand what capitalism actually is. I mean, the big one of the, they're they're like two big words, uh, if you're reading Frankfurt School people in critical theory, right? One of them is reification and the other one is mystification. And the right had spent decades uh, sort of under a, a mystification of capitalism. So in other words, sort of captured by the appearances and the, the mythos around the system that actually existed to, to produce and reproduce systems of control and exploitation. Um, and, and so as I think people on the right begin to feel disempowered, uh, sort of cut out of the mainstream conversation, whatever. And, and also as they begin to feel 
under assault from corporate America, these things all become more appealing, more powerful, um, more trenchant. And I first started noticing this with the alt-right. And uh, uh, when I was beginning to notice it, I, I thought of it in more terms, more of a European import. Um, but it, I've realized that it's, first of all, that it, it was, I think, always broader than that, probably just because of because of how influential critical theory had become through the universities, any educated person was exposed to it. So you didn't have to be part of some creepy uh, white nationalist secret society that happened to be smuggling in, uh, you know, Marcuse in some sort of impish way. So everybody at a certain level of uh, educated class was exposed to this stuff. Um, but yeah, but I think it then it gets incorporated into a critique of bureaucratic state power in terms that are almost just a precise inversion of the way Marcuse frames it here. So Marcuse is saying the left is systematically excluded from the uh, the kind of processes of consensus formation um, within the state and has to has to escape from them and has to reject tolerance in order to escape from them. And you see something almost uh, identical going on on the right now, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and you definitely see uh, just a, a rejection of the idea that appealing to the the sort of supposed neutral arbitration offered by these institutions is a is a productive approach. Like you see people on the right just, and you know, I'd say particularly the younger and more you know dissident types. You know, that's the thing they essentially ridicule and attack the more kind of traditional fusionist right for, I would say even that, um, that, uh, what's it called? David French gate, you know, the attack on David French, it was really a version of that, right? Because he was, he was attacking French essentially for taking for granted the, um, the very things that, that Marcuse is also critiquing here. Right. That's exactly right. The the one difference being that Marcuse is interested in media pointedly and explicitly, and Amari and French were arguing more over legal stuff and institutions, right. and it was less about the kind of discursive control. But I think that was there as a subtext. But yeah, mm-hmm. otherwise, right that that played out there, and I think it's played out in. I mean, it, like, watch Tucker Carlson on any given night. I mean, there is a a kind of, and and I don't only mean the nights that he has Glenn Greenwald on. Um, there, Carlson is not only explicitly engaging in a critique of, you know, the elites in some sort of conspiratorial way. He's critiquing consensus formation in a way that is more. Cl- more closely resembles Noam Chomsky than anyone else on cable TV, right? If you were looking for right, 
like who if you're looking for who has the most Chomskyite analysis out of major broadcasters and I mean, you know people get um horrified and outraged um anytime you say anything about Carlson that's not just denouncing him but this is just a this is a descriptive fact not a normative judgment he is more invested in that kind of critique than uh than anyone else and you can think that that's cynical or or bad or whatever but it's true yeah there's a bit from um uh repressive tolerance he says, <clears throat> with the concentration of economic and political power and the integration of opposites in the society, which uses technology as an instrument of domination, effective dissent is blocked where it could freely emerge in the formation of opinion, in information and communication, in speech and assembly. Under the rule of monopolistic media, themselves the mere instruments of economic and political power, a mentality is created for which right and wrong, true and false, are predefined wherever they affect the vital interests of the society. I think that's spot on. Uh, you know, I, I don't disagree with a word of that. Um, I don't disagree with a word of that. Uh, I don't think that that applies equally at all times in all liberal societies, you know, and, and maybe that's part of where I would have strong disagreements with Marcuse throughout this, but that that's one of the things that, you know, some of this is, more contingent, I think. And actually, you know, ironically, at the moment Marcuse was writing this in 65 and in this flowering of the new left and the Berkeley free speech movement, there was actually quite a lot of uh, radical dissent. And, uh, you know, maybe you could say that that was all that was all neutered or, or all a form of artificial negativity, but I, I, I don't, I'm not convinced that that's true. I think that the kind of latent conditions for that are always there, but not that it's always equally true, if that makes sense. What I found surprising about this text when I first encountered it quite a long time ago was some of the points he makes about the way that the left is marginalized, not by suppression, but by tolerance, right? That, that in effect it, it doesn't need to be suppressed or persecuted, right? Where he says, um, this majority is firmly grounded in the increasing satisfaction of needs and technological and mental coordination, which testify to the general helplessness of radical groups in a well-functioning social system. So that, you know, there's all this discussion of how the left is not, is not the victim of any kind of, um, you know, sort of authoritarian repression, but instead is just rendered irrelevant by the the sort of functioning of the system. Um, I mean, what struck me when I first discovered this actually like pretty early on when I was sort of a, you know, teenager dabbling in Marxism really before the, you know, new efflorescence of Marxism in, in the U S post 2008, um, you know, it, it struck me as very, um, clearly that that was a good description of the situation in like the late nineties, early two thousands, as far as radical politics in the U S went, right. That, you know, these people weren't being suppressed. They were just irrelevant, right. They were kind of laughable. You know, I mean, I remember just going to protests even, you know, which before the Iraq war were pretty, you know, pretty small affairs. And, uh, you know, just these kind of sad old guys like selling their party newspapers, and just, you know, they, they seemed so profoundly disconnected and just, you know, these kind of totally irrelevant figures. And so, 
you know, that at the time was very, just something that struck me as like, you know, the whole idea of Marxism is that it's, it's about building a, a mass movement. And yet when I find actual Marxists in the world, they seem to just be these, these kind of odd eccentrics. Um, so, you know, that th- this argument, when I read it, I thought, yeah, this is totally, you know, these people aren't being arrested and suppressed for their, you know, anti-capitalist beliefs. They're just kind of being left to be laughed at and, and not taken seriously. And um, what was interesting to me, though, going back to what you just said, um, was that, you know, realizing it was written in this period that was supposedly the heyday of, of radical politics in America, um, you know, was sort of surprising to me because it, it sounded much more like it was describing the 90s. Um, so that's interesting you say that because I th- I remember those kinds of 90s uh, activist and left-wing events. And I hear what you're saying, but they were so self-marginalizing that it, it mm-hmm. seems like this is less consequential. You know, if you wanted a more acid, pointed application of this doctrine, it would be to the uh, to the the you know the, the the years of rage we've had in the streets over the past mm-hmm. four years. I mean, take your pick to the kind of Antifa versus Proud Boys uh, battles uh, to much of the. Uh, roving, uh, Black Lives Matter protests that were, I mean, has any movement in history ever found its corporate branding as quickly? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, uh, that you, you don't have to take that necessarily as a statement on the, uh, the values of that movement. That's actually a different question. Uh, one right. that I'm happy to talk about, but that's not what this is about. This is about what challenges power and what doesn't and how does power specifically in America, corporate power respond to these challenges. And, and it responds by, uh, you know, first of all, by absorbing them as much as is possible by satisfying uh, whatever demands it thinks will uh, divert attention from its core interests, um, from uh, redirecting energy to symbolism and a discursive emphasis and a cultural emphasis. So I hear what you're saying about like, you know, whatever wobbly group or, um, you know, uh, whatever internationalist group. I mean, I, I used to encounter these guys in the nineties too. And I would talk to them and I mean, I wasn't, I didn't go to any protests as a, an activist, but I, I rubbed shoulders with a lot of people. And I, it just felt like, uh, I'll be honest with you. I mean, it felt like a, a kind of another subculture, like the nineties was full of sub, subcultures. This was another subculture. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, less threatening, but I mean, the past four years have been, this is supposed to have been a moment of real challenges to power, of real radical politics, and yet much, much more directly absorbed by corporate power than some Mm -hmm. Trotskyite in 95 ever was. And maybe that's because corporate power found them more threatening than it found a Trotskyite in 95. I don't know, but it seems to me like a, a more pointed illustration of the Marcuse's thesis in that way. Yeah. And in that sense, perhaps, um, you know, again, this was just sort of my first impression of it when I, when I encountered it back then. And, um, 
You know, in that sense, I think it's sort of, you know, what you're saying to some extent answers the, the thing I found a bit um, confusing then, which was, you know, how could he be making this sort of an argument in, in a period when I understood to be, um, you know, again, one of the heydays of, of radical politics, but um, you know, this, the same question arises today, right? We've seen these, these mass mobilizations um, that are, you know, quite remarkable, at least in numerical terms. And, and yet, you know, we've also seen the power of their messages to be, as you said, branded and kind of incorporated into <laughs> the, uh, the culture industry for one thing. So, well, and that happens at a, at a sort of national stage. You know, when I think about the, the, the protests, there's the way that it operates in sort of, elite national culture and publications. And then there's sort of like, you know, if you think about like a sort of offshoot of, of Black Lives Matter, like Campaign Zero, um, which is an organization I have a lot of respect for, you know, which is very focused on, you know, because a lot of policing is local, right? So a lot of the changes that you would want to make are not the sort of thing that you would necessarily get, um, a big news story for because it is a slew of changes to policies and training and a whole variety of things in, you know, a million little police departments. Right. Um, and that, that type of work. Um, and then you sort of see the way that, uh, sort of black lives matter gets, um, sort of used as sort of symbolically, right? So like one thing that I always think of is like the NBA um, where, you know, you can wear slogans on your shirt that are related to social justice issues, um, but you're not going to talk about sort of the genocide of the Uyghurs, right? Because China wields a certain degree of, you know, wields its sort of um, economic power uh, very bluntly. And then conservatives seize upon that as a reason for dismissing the sort of social justice messages of, you know, of the players. Right. And it's, it, it, it's this weird sort of <laughs> like, um, you know, uh, symbolic clash. Yeah. Um, with the players where, you know, maybe, but you know, with the league, I think it's a more, um, I think the critique applies more to the league than to the individual. Right. The, 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 no, that's what I, the, that's yeah. what I'm talking about. Right. Like, so you could have a very earnest and even very thoughtful critique from a player. And then the cynicism, the cynicism of the league, right. Is then, uh, you know, sort of a reason for, you know, the people who don't want to deal with the Black Lives Matter protest or sort of underly, underlying issues of police brutality is, well, it's like, you know, well, well, you don't care about genocide, right? Um, so there's a sort of issue of hypocrisy that we're going to throw at you, which is a critique against the league that also serves to kind of try to neutralize uh, what is supposed to be the essential, like, real uh, subject of discussion. Right? Yeah, I think you could look at your initial point is spot on and you could make that into a formal rule, which is that uh, the closer you get to national politics, the more certain you can be that you're in the realm of fantasy on some level uh, and of symbolic manipulation and of uh, the society of the spectacle. And um, I, I don't 
I don't think I've ever felt that was more true in my lifetime than I do at the moment. But um, yeah, I wouldn't deny that there's meaningful political organizing and activity going on at a local level. I think that stuff tends to be uh, obviously more difficult to absorb by, you know, corporate structures basically uninterested in it. Uh, But it's also, it's not what captures the imagination in the same way. Um, hey, before we get to the question of what this would look like, which I think is actually a, it, it's a it's, that's the big that question, the big right? question. Mm-hmm. So should we just skip right to that? Uh, yeah. Okay. So what would this look like? Here you go. Right. This is uh, my attempt to answer that by quoting directly. Uh, oh, actually, this is the same quote Phil already read. Under the rule of monopolistic media, themselves the mere instruments of economic and political power, a mentality is created for which right and wrong, true and false, are predefined wherever they affect the vital interests of the society. This is prior to all expression and communication, a matter of semantics, the blocking of effective dissent, of the recognition of that which is not of the establishment, which begins in the language that is publicized and administered. Uh, So that's part of it, I think, uh, which we already have. And then I think the other part of it, and I'm looking for a quote that sums this up, but the other part of it is essentially what Marcuse describes, or what he prescribes, rather, is, um, you know, that uh, tolerance is good for the left, but should be denied to the regressive reactionary right, which is precisely what we are seeing happen at the moment and if and you know the irony of that notwithstanding no 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 no. you're seeing it in all directions you're sort of seeing it in all directions because it it, you know like (laughs) it, it, it you know we were just talking about sort of folks on the right taking up these same ideas um you know i think i have a a shorter quote uh that i think maybe suggest what this looks like in practice. It's from an Alan Shapiro poem called The Public, right? And this is just the first sentence in the poem. The public. The no one of it is everywhere. Yeah, but look, there is a a, an effort at mass suppression and a very coordinated effort at um mass uh consensus enforcement that is pointedly political that's not exclusive to the right but is mostly directed at the right because uh that's where the most populist energy uh against the the kind of establishment party corporate um intelligence agency NGO structure is at the moment the, you know, much of the left populist movement got absorbed uh, with, you know, Bernie's endorsement of Biden and what remains of a kind of left opposition, whatever post leftists and uh, Marxists and whomever, um, you know, is just not as meaningful as an opposition, but the, the degree to which the, corporations who control the underlying reality mechanisms in which all of us are enmeshed and on which we depend for our identities, 
for our livelihoods, for our access to medical information, our ability to interact with other human beings, that, that information structure is directly tied into the Democratic Party at this point and has a specific set of prerogatives that it's attempting to enact. And nobody denies this. That's the thing. Like, it may be uncomfortable to hear it put that way, but nobody denies that that's what's going on because, in fact, what you're getting is continuous calls uh, from congressmen, you know, Democrats in Congress, from journalists, from activists, from concerned liberals to uh, enforce information control, to, to combat disinformation, to enforce terrorism statutes. There's some... There's some outliers, you know, Rashida Tlaib objects, Ilan Omar objects, but for the most part, that's what's happening. I, first of all, I don't think it's as coordinated as you say it is. Um, I mean, but one of the things that I disliked reading this was the sort of the simplicity that dichotomies, right? He seems to think he's so certain all the time that that we can actually sort of figure out, you know, what are, you know, uh, what's going in what direction, right? What is in the, what is in the side of tolerance? What is in the side of, of, uh, progressivism? Um, you know, I, I, I certainly have friends with more progressive bent who feel that there's more free speech than ever before, right? Because, um, which other few people feel like the sort of closing of a window of what is, what seems permissible is to them an opening. And I think that, you know, he, um, <laughs> he, he seems to think, here we go. Uh, the distinction between true and false tolerance between progress and regression can be made rationally on empirical grounds. The real possibilities of human freedom are relative to the attained stage of civilization, they depend on the material and intellectual resources available at the respective, respective age, and they are quantifiable and calculable to a high degree, which I think is insane. Insane. Totally right. insane. And mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's. This is the guy who's, who's um, critiquing rationalized, bureaucratized society. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and look, you know, I. I I think I mentioned I've been reading von Balthasar and uh and Balthasar thought that the truth is symphonic, right? Um that the truth is too overwhelming to be captured in a net of finite concepts. Um and so, you know, we we ought to think of of, of the truth in terms of um well of the symphony, right? Uh of polyphony. And and that strikes me as much more plausible a way of thinking about um, styles of human argument and belief and, and culture and how they interact. I, I couldn't right? agree but, more, but um, that being the case, I think it's important to recognize that that very point of view, that a democracy ought to host a kind of polyphonous public discourse is explicitly under attack. And okay, you but, may feel like you, you, you are, you, th- this is where I disagree. You, you seem to be putting this at, it's sort of liberalism, right? And there's sort of liberalism is doing this, and then there's sort of outliers no, on by the, way. the yes. left, Rashida yeah. Tlaib, and 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 such, and then 
the attack is purely on the right. I think what is happening is various different camps are trying to sort of lock down the institutions that they control, right? Um, which, which ones so of those camps are uh, hostile to the Democratic Party? Which which, which, which I mean like, which what which media organiz which media organizations are hostile to the Democratic yeah, the, the Party? institutions I mean, trying to lock down the mechanisms of control. Which which ones are hostile to the Democratic Party? The I mean, there are plenty within our political process. There are certainly um, I mean, <laughs> I. I don't think that that all of uh, big business is solidly, you know, pulling for for you, the Democrats. You, you'd the be time. wrong if you were judging based on the flows of money. So the there was uh, this was the look uh, effectively Wall Street and Silicon Valley, which are the two largest financial concentrations in America and in American history, um, both went overwhelmingly. For Biden, overwhelmingly for Biden and effectively subsidize the Democratic Party at this point. And that's why this is dangerous. It's not, this is not about like, uh, it's not about ideology. You know, it's about who controls public spaces. And in a democracy, you have to have public discourse. And if the spaces in which public discourse occurs are owned by corporations and those corporations are beholden to a certain political power structure and they, uh, they, you know, without any democratic accountability, set rules and enforce rules that, uh, you know, happen to, to privilege or benefit certain groups over other groups. That's not fundamentally a question of like left or right ideology. It's a question of a dangerous and undemocratic concentration of power. Well, so th that, that I'll certainly agree with, right? Like, so there was something sort of deeply pathetic during the, uh, you know, the insurrection of people sort of, you know, praying that our tech overlords would shut down Donald Trump's Twitter account because politically we we lacked the ability to respond to that event in a meaningful way right um in the way that sort of you know you would imagine statesmen would and so yeah there's something deeply disturbing about that concentration of power and the sort of you know the most important sanction that has been put on the president for what he did seems to have been decided by what is it, Jack Dorsey? Jack Dorsey, the, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, Dorsey, who looks like a guy who I, I wouldn't trust to make my coffee. Um, yeah, it's it's a bit too much power uh, to make me comfortable. But um, I, right. Yeah. So then the question is, what do you what do you do well, about that? Right? I think part of this. I have a, a. I turned in a huge piece on this, like a. And and this is this is where Marcus is, <coughs> is naive because he thinks he thinks that you can he thinks you can figure it out. I mean, it goes back to that question about media, right? Like, is Black Panther progressive or or repressive? Is Joker progressive or repressive? I mean, in some ways, it's a sort of absurd question. No, right? I couldn't agree with uh, you more. That's why I'm saying this is the realization. This is what's so. I, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe one of you guys understands this in a more sophisticated way than I do. But to me, it seems so incoherent and irreconcilable because on the one hand, 
he's critiquing the ways in which uh, the open society actually enforces conformity. And then at the same time, you know, his conclusion is we need a radical subject to break out of the uh, break out of that trap and, and in possession of the revolutionary truth to create a new society. And it seems to me that that's very much in keeping. And, and, and somehow be the one with the actual power to put this into effect. Right. Well, he has yeah. a, he has an odd um, kind of acknowledgement at the end of the, something that I took in, in the um, postscript, which I took, you know, to be a, I, you know, before I got to that, I, was essentially thinking in this direction where he, he kind of acknowledges this criticism that, um, you know, he says radical critics are readily denounced as advocating an elitism, a dictatorship of intellectual. And I assume by radical critics, he means himself here. And then, but then he sort of acknowledges, you know, it's as if he seems to acknowledge this, right. Um, because he says, what we in fact have is a government representative government by a non-intellectual minority of politicians, generals, and businessmen. The record of this elite is not very promising, and political prerogatives <laughs> for the intelligentsia may not necessarily be worse for the society as a whole. Um, so there he, he seems to kind of come clean about the fact that what he seems to be arguing for is a dictatorship of... Uh, you know, this kind of enlightened elite of, of rational subjects who are capable of, of well, I mean, seeking yeah. the truth. Um, He's not and, wrong. Good. <laughs> but so he, he, you know, when, I, when, I, I when it comes the to the question of what it, what it looks like, um, Especially the record right. of this elite is not very promising. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, he's not wrong yeah. about that point. Definitely. Um, but yeah. The, uh, it's it's interesting that here he does seem to acknowledge that that is effectively what this looks like in practice. Well, I was thinking also that right. he's not wrong in acknowledging that uh, society requires an elite and that right. sure. you, get, you mm-hmm. get rid of one elite, you're going to wind up with another one way or the other. And so you might as well uh, acknowledge that fact so you can have some role in shaping it. He's... Okay, but but this is this is why you know when when you're talking about stuff like this, I, I, I always think about the debates going on at the American founding, right? Like the Federalist Papers and all this stuff, because it's all about people trying to figure out the practicalities of how power is wielded and what the consequences are going to be for the sets of rules that you set up for how power is wielded, because they understood <laughs> that a large part of the game was there, right, and there, there are places where this gets so abstract and, you know, that I enjoyed that passage about, you know, how the record of the elites is, is, is not very good, you know, so, so we might as well go with whatever, whatever it is my system is, but like, I I just, I, I can't have much respect for anybody who is not really interested in the practicality of, of, mm-hmm. of, of how you would exercise this power and how you would change These were not practical right? thinkers, these Frankfurt School guys. Mm-hmm. You know? And nor were they, I mean, you know, Marcuse in particular is not a, not a lucid writer, I would say. Uh, some of them were, were more no. lucid. But, um, yeah, I mean, you, the Federalist... It's kind uh, of a windbag. This is, it's, it's not a fun... No, no, but it's not fun, but yeah. he's 
got real analytical power. And when he's on to something, yes, he he's really yeah. on to something. What I think, you know, look, do you need an elite? Yes. Uh, all these guys, I mean, the reason, like, <laughs> critical theory is a good word for it. Like, the, all these guys are much better on the attack, right? Well, critical theory is an attempt, uh, again, to come back to the idea that, like, rather than sort of fighting piecemeal culture battles, it's an attempt to reckon with the overall structures of control and power within a society, within a technocratic society, where those, where that power and that control is spread out over a um, kind of uh, procedural, institutional, technological apparatus, right? And so it's, you know, it's sort of building on some of the Foucaultian ideas, but it's, again, as with Foucault, it's not without its place. It's not without its power. It, it goes uh, in some crazy directions, but it's not without its insights. But like... Marcuse's idea that what you need is a an in, intelligentsia as the elite is where he's really wrong. I, I mean, I, at certain points when I was reading this, I was thinking, Phil, you know, you were talking about, I don't know if you mentioned Madison specifically, but you were talking about founders. And you know, I was thinking like, what he's really saying is you need a, a Republican virtue. You know, you need like a, an informed citizenry yeah. capable of exercising its duties and its uh, duties within the Republic and that, uh, and that you also need wise leaders. And so a wise elite, not an intelligentsia, which has not gone well historically in power. But, um, but the, the thing that I came away from this with was a rededication to liberal tolerance, you know, which I, I totally believe mm -hmm. in, um, you know, real liberal tolerance, meaning, both structural liberal tolerance, like limits on the power of the state and the recognition that it shouldn't be mistaken for some kind of uh, divine representation of the general will or, or justice or whatever else. And then also liberal tolerance, not because it's teleologically connected to truth, like Marcuse thinks, or because it's connected to rationality, like McIntyre says, because it's connected to coexistence. That's the telos of tolerance is coexistence. Tolerance is the means by which people who are never going to be able to agree can live next door to one another and get along in a society that both of them inhabit and that grants them equal legal rights. And, you know, this is, uh, this seems to me pretty basic stuff, but mm -hmm. has been lost. So uh, this is more of a question, but I, I'm interested in what he's referring to, particularly, I mean, he largely refers to the right. At some points, he refers to the right, parentheses, or center. And, I mean, one way I would differentiate what I take him to be referring to with that, sort of institutionally, is that I think he's essentially referring to what he takes to be the sort of dominant ideology of the, you know, mid-century U.S., right? The the sort of the military-industrial complex and its, um, you know, the the array of of uh, interests in both political parties that are largely aligned with it, and that you know, and and the sort of larger, um, you know, corporate technocratic administrative apparatus 
So I take him to be referring, when he refers to the need to, in some way, suppress the right or deny tolerance to it, what's even more kind of remarkable about that claim is that essentially what he's saying is that we need to withhold tolerance from precisely that which is the most dominant um, force. And that differentiates it from the arguments we've compared it to in the present where, you know, essentially the the argument is to... um, to deny, you know, the ability to um, have social media accounts or whatever to entities that are already relatively marginal, right, and th- that are that are already relatively weak politically. And, I mean, including Donald Trump, right, who is institutionally um, isolated and you know quite weak as a president. So, you know, there is some difference there, and and something remarkable about the nature of the argument that could be lost if we compare it to the present is that, you know, he's essentially arguing for something that seems utterly impossible. And he kind of admits this at the end, right. Where he says that, um, you know, he essentially admits that, um, you know, I committed this petitio principi in order to combat the pernicious ideology. that tolerance is already institutionalized in the society when he says the practice already presupposes the radical goal, which it seeks to achieve. In other words, if, if the left is completely out of power, then how can it suppress the right, which is completely ensconced within power? So, you know, th- there is at least kind of an honesty in that acknowledgement at the end of the, the um, remarkable kind of impracticability of, of what he's proposing. But I think but actually I, that, yeah, I think that this actually responds to what you brought up earlier, which is, how does it make sense that he embraces the cultural radicalism of the new left if he understands uh, the the power of the uh, the establishment uh, to be constituted in large part by its ability to absorb cultural radicalism? Right. And I think part of what he's trying to do here, and if you, you know, I say this knowing something about his relationship to the new left at the time, which would actually intensify in the years after he wrote this. And then there was a, right. something of a correction after that. But I think partly what he's doing here is trying to tell uh, these kids in California and these kids in New York and wherever else, this uh, potential intelligentsia revolutionary subject group that, uh, you know, don't feel the need to obey uh, the the doctrines of civility. Don't let anyone tone police you. Is what he's saying, right, you know. Right, right. And he's trying to build up a uh, build up a, an intellectual basis for um, a group that will violate liberality and the principle of tolerance. Now, to me, it's striking that he would think that those kids needed his coaching in that regard, you know, like, um, but that was how I understood the connection between those two points. Mm, Yeah. Which, which does also anticipate certain um, discussions that have happened in more recent years, right. That, that you've had actually exactly that debate on the left. Um, And, and in fact, the whole coinage of the, the term dirtbag left was in a in the context of an essay, I believe, that largely made the case for that, right? For the case against respecting norms of civility and and for a kind of insolent disrespect for 
Who you wrote know, the essay? Amber, Frost? I believe it was Amber Frost, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, well, so not these for things... Nothing, it was, yeah, not for nothing, the... I wrote two essays over the past four years dealing with uh, critical theory in the right. And one of them opens with a something on the dirtbag left before I get mm-hmm. to, uh, what is this? Something about the, the right embracing the Frankfurt school. So there was, um, yeah, the, there, that confluence was there. Um, yeah. but where did it get them? You know, I mean, they, they were, I mean, first of all, I don't know if that's anyone's idea of a dirtbag, you know, but like, where did all the uh, incivility get them finally? Yeah. So, all right, maybe that's a different question. Well, I think it it built them a good um, sort of audience base and good Patreon money, but um, yeah. politically, I'm not sure. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think that's right. And I don't think, by the way, that that was some cynical ploy on their part. You know, I think a lot of people honestly believed that this was a meaningful praxis, as you might say. Uh, It just wasn't, you know? Yeah. Well, shall we move on to Kafka? Yeah. Amber's a good writer, too, you know, actually. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. So, okay, Kafka. All right. One of you guys want to lead this off? Well, actually, you picked it, Jeff. Why don't you say why uh, why Kafka and why this story? It was really a whim, to be honest. But I've just I've always liked this story a lot, and i I always find it as somewhat um, you know it's it's less less known than the Metamorphosis, obviously, with which I I tend to pair it in my mind. Um, I, I really think they're almost two versions of the same story in some sense. And I, it's just a story I find myself recommending a lot. I, I find it um, persistently mysterious and powerful and um, highly disturbing. And I've, um, I've always just found the, um, probably the part that most, uh, fascinates me about it is the figure of the friend in Russia. Oh yeah. Um, (laughs) Should we we give a a, a quick outline of uh, of it first? Mm -hmm. Um, So he, he starts out with him trying to write a letter to his friend in Russia. Who's, who's, you know, uh, and it's this kind of ridiculous though, also insoluble dilemma what should one write to such a man who had obviously gone off course, a man one could feel sorry for, but could not help. And basically his friend has gone off to Russia. Hasn't things haven't gone well. And to spare his friend's feelings, he hasn't talked about how well he's doing. And especially since the death of his mother, um, there's this sort of interesting passage where he sort of suggests that because of the death of his mother and, and because of his father's like decline, uh, he's able to do more in business and has been extremely successful. His business has taken off. Um, and, and now he's gotten engaged. Um, and probably, um, we can talk about when it was, uh, written later, but, and he's wondering whether he can tell his friend about the engagement and, you know, if he invites the friend to the wedding, like he's at some point, like this sort of, the kind of half truths, you know, what he's been concealing from his friend, uh, it, it gets worse and worse to tell him the truth because he's been concealing it. Um, his fiance 
wants him uh, to tell the news. And <laughs> the conversation is so bizarre. I mean, the, the dialogue, uh, you know, he, he's describing his friend. He's like, alone, do you know what that means? He tells her. And she says, if you have friends like that, George, you shouldn't have gotten engaged at all. Right. Um, and <laughs> so then he finally decides he's going to invite the friend to throw off his inhibitions and visit. Um, and so he goes to tell his father that he's written this letter to his friend. <laughs> and then his father... How, how would you describe what happens with the father? Well, essentially, at first, the father is almost seems like an invalid. He's in this dark room. He seems, I mean, he describes him as a giant. Um, yeah. But at the same time, he seems feeble. At a certain point, he's sort of infantilized. Um, he, you know, um, Georg thinks he is, you know, possibly on death's door. And then at a certain point, spoiler alert, um, the father sort of, um, he, he tucks him into bed thinking he seems really unwell. And then at that point, the, the father sort of bursts forth with this immense strength and vigor and essentially begins denouncing his son and explaining that this friend who he, who the son believed the father might barely remember and who the um, father initially the, denies knowing. The father eventually denies, originally it, it, denies remembering. It's not coherent, right? Yeah. It's like, George, it, you, listen to me. You've come to me about this matter to discuss it m- with me. No doubt that's a credit to you. Yeah. But it's nothing, worse than nothing, if you don't now tell me the complete truth. Right. Right? Um, and at that point, in you know, you hear that and you're just like, like oh, like this story is something totally different. Yeah, uh, from what I thought it was going to be, um, it's a twist. Uh, yeah, and and, and 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 so don't deceive me. Do yeah. you really have this friend in Saint Petersburg? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then like it, it goes it goes further, and then he and then he's like, yes, I do, I do know your friend. Um, and he, uh, or, or, or he but yeah, sorry. First, he, first he carries the father to bed, right? Which is this interesting. Um, tender image and then the father's like yes i do i do know your friend he'd be a son after my own heart that's why you've been betraying him for years why else do you think i've not wept for him and and then he goes on this rant and all these accusations and and the father stands up he was radiant with insight kafka says um but then he says but now your friend hasn't been betrayed at all cried the father his forefinger waving back and forth emphasized the point i've been his on-the-spot representative here uh, it's, it's so it's so wild and funny it's yeah, hilarious and that's why i was glad you picked this one because it's uh, both terrifying and hilarious mm-hmm. um and you know it's got this um baroque quality to it you know like a baroque yes. hallucination yeah. and you know yeah. it does start off seeming you know it's i think it's um I can't remember. There's some pleasant description of the setting that it opens with, but then very quickly, as soon as uh, George gets into the plotting of the letter to the Russian, you realize how unsettled he is, how there's something at bottom just eerie and unstable in, uh, you know, in the ground that this is, this is taking place on. And he's, He's sort of, there's like this excessive agreeableness that's actually yeah. both insecurity and malevolence 
And so he's mm-hmm. writing to the friend and it's, it's, you know, very courtly and courteous. But in fact, he's trying to torment this friend who you're, you're not even sure exists at some point. You're like, is there a friend? I don't know. Then the father denies there's a friend, you know, so. And, 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 and it, the sort of like, oh, I can't hurt his feelings is also in its own way, a kind of cruel oh, judgment about the weakness of the friend. Well, right? it's him being yeah. cruel. I can't, I, yeah. I, you know, he's so afraid he has to take care not to hurt his friend's feelings. And then he composes a letter or, or the, the fiance like forces him to do it. But then the letter he writes is just like rubbing his nose in the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, you know, it's that, that kind of like high European manners that is so barbed, except that it's not barbed in a way that feels like a, that feels like a deliberate enactment. Like the, the George character, the protagonist seems to me feels out of control. Like all of this is sort of uh, happening around him and he's participating in it, but he's never fully in control of it. It's his relationship to his own, fantasies is always uh, his own fears and fantasies is always sort of you know making the the wavering what's going on like the action is never that solid it feels like to me but it's then you get to the end and it's just uh i don't know i don't know and and the father unsettles everything and like everything is the father's Mm -hmm. right like Stay where you are. I don't need you. Perhaps all on my own, I would have had to back off. But your mother gave me so much of her strength that I've established a splendid relationship with your friend, and I have your customers here in my pocket. And then, and then the father's next line is, "Just link arms with your fiance and cross my path. I'll sweep her right from your side. You have no idea how." Right. Uh, and he describes how he's been he's been writing the true letters mm-hmm. to the friend the whole time. Uh, uh, I've been writing him because you forgot to take my writing things away from me. That's why he hasn't come for years. He knows everything a hundred times better than you do yourself. He crumples up your letters unread in his left hand while in his right hand he holds my letters up to read. <laughs> and the, oh my God. But this um, this issue of him being in control versus not, I mean, that's in a sense what, you know, the... The the first section, he is in some sense trying to project some image of himself as cool and collected and sort of confident in his situation. And yeah, all of that sort of falls apart, um, you know, and including he he's sort of um, there's this idea that he's essentially taken over the business from the father, but he sort of lets him hang around just right, out of, right. to be nice and then the father also says, you know, all of your clients are actually, you know, in my back pocket, basically. Um, you know, I, you know, he, he claims that the father claims that he is essentially actually running the business. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's this kind of carefully constructed, um, self image that, that just completely evaporates. Well, you know, in the, in the it, he gets unmanned story. by his own father. Right, yeah, his yeah. father right. systematically unmans him, and the the humor in it for me is in the baroqueness, in the sense that if there was only a single betrayal, right, if it was just that 
uh, the father had been running the business for real behind his back, or if it was just that, um, you know, the father had maintained some relationship with this mysterious Petersburg character who he actually regarded as the son he always wanted. There's something more sort of, uh, somber and, you know, conventionally tragic, but it's the fact that after opening with George as this character who's so in control and so in mag- so magnanimous that he has to show pity to everyone else. He has to show right. pity to the friend in Petersburg. He's afraid for his feelings. He has to tend to his father. And then it all gets like ripped apart with every one of his terrible childhood fears being realized one after the other. Like your mother didn't love you. You, you are not a real man. You can't run the, I run the business. So you're still a, a baby. Only you're a baby whose own mother doesn't love him. And also mm. you don't really have a friend and you don't have a father either. Right? Like I'm not really your father. I'm this Peter Risberg guy's father. You're a, a runt, yeah. an unwanted thing whose own wife, I'll cuckold you. You know what I mean? Like right. I, I, I'll cuck you to your own wife. And, uh, and like, it's the accumulation that's both, it's, I don't mean to say that it's funny in a lightly comic way, you know, it's funny in a terrifying way, in an unnerving way, but where, you know, you would, you want to laugh. Um, well, he, so he actually, right. He calls the fa- he calls the father a comedian, right. But then it says he could not resist the retort realized once the harm done and his eyes starting in his head, bit his tongue back only too late till the pain made his knees give. Yes, of course I've been playing a comedy, a comedy. That's a good expression. What other comfort was left to a poor old widower? So, I mean, in this, um, throughout this, uh, you know, confrontation, he repeatedly tries to kind of take the wind out of his father. It says he tries to make fun of him. Um, but all of his jokes sort of turn back on him. Um, you know, when he tries to, to kind of cut his father back down to size, um, it, it merely seems to kind of strengthen him further. There's from the, uh, so Kafka wrote a letter to his father mm-hmm. that's sort of famous, um, cause he had a complicated <laughs> relationship with his father who he, he's, he's thought of as a sort of tyrant. Um, and he wrote, Sometimes I imagine the map of the world laid out and you stretched across it and all that is left for my life are the areas you don't cover, you can't reach. Um, and this, this is, this is, this is where the, the father is reaching into every single corner of that map. Right. Yeah. Um, it's perfect with this story actually, right? Cause it, it, his father is sprawled out across all the available land. So what's left? Mm-hmm. Go, go right. swim, kid. You know. Uh, well, yeah. So, so let's talk about the end, right? So he, his the final thing that he says is, "So now you know what there was in the world outside of yourself. Up to this point, you've known only about yourself. Essentially, you've been an innocent child. But even more essentially, you've been a devilish human being. And therefore, understand this: I sentence you now to death by drowning." And then he goes and, <laughs> and drowns himself, and. Well, he, 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 he swings himself over Wait, read, a bridge. Phil, read right? that final line, though. It's Read that couplet at the end. Okay, okay. 
So he swung himself over like the outstanding gymnast he'd been in his youth to his parents' pride. Which, by the way, it's just such a great touch. Um, he was still holding on, his grip weakening, when between the railings he caught sight of a motor coach which would easily drown out the noise of his fall. He called out quietly, Dear parents, I have always loved you nonetheless, and let himself drop. At that moment, an almost unending stream of traffic was going over the bridge. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. And that dear parents, I've always loved you nonetheless. Oh. No, it's like the disappointment of everyone of the most foundational um, childhood desires, right? Like you don't actually – your parents don't love you. You don't actually become a man. You can't have a woman of your, you can't have your mother, but you also can't have a woman of your own. You can't have friends. It's uh you know, it's a kind of, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, a, what's the word for it? Like a, a paranoid, um, but there's something. So there's an innocence in it, you know, like, because he thinks he's in control and then he's so helpless. He's so totally helpless. He's so pathetic. What's the judgment for? You know, mm -hmm. why, why are you, why? I mean, the story is the judgment. Why has he been sentenced to death? Because, mm -hmm. because he never, he was a solipsist. He never recognized anybody other than himself. I mean, it's, you just you feel that kind of childhood terror that all of us, without you know sounding like some new age, uh, get in touch with your inner child person. Like you know, there's a nobody ever entirely loses that. And I guess if you had a father like Kafka's, you stay more intimately in touch with it, you know, and and it's more lurid, but. Um, but yeah, nobody ever entirely loses it. And to have it so graphically and like yeah. almost in a burlet brought to life in this kind of like horrifying burlesque like this is both terrifying, but also unavoidably funny. Yeah. There's, there's a great bit on this in um, Benjamin in Illuminations mm. where he says, um, the fathers in Kafka's strange families batten on their sons, lying on top of them like gi giant parasites. They not only prey upon their strength, but gnaw away at the son's right to exist. The fathers punish, but they are at the same time the accusers. The sin of which they accuse their son seems to be a kind of original sin. The definition of it, which Kafka has given, applies to the sons more than to anyone else. Original sin, the old injustice committed by man, consists in the complaint unceasingly made by man that he has been the victim of an injustice, the victim of original sin. But who is accused of this inherited sin, the sin of having produced an heir, if not the father by the son? Accordingly, the son would be the sinner. But one must not conclude from Kafka's definition that the accusation is sinful because it is false. Nowhere does Kafka say that it is made wrongfully. Um, and like, it's this, I don't know, this, <laughs> you asked what the judgment was. And, you know, there's a, there's a sort of 
perfect kind of like psychological logicality to everything that the father says. And at the same time, the father is contradictory and insane, mm-hmm. right? Seeming. Um, but so sure of himself <laughs> in a way that you yeah. don't and the, and the son just, you know, just accepts right. it. Yeah. Uh, um, and you, yeah, like it's, it's funny. You, come down much harder on him in the beginning, Jake, than I did. Whereas, uh, you know, you read him purely as being cool, where I think that it's, it's just this sort of messy mixture. Right? I like, George I get, is being cruel, you're saying? Or the father? Yeah, to oh, the friend. friend. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, to, to the friend, right, right. We're like, like, you know, I read it as him really being, you know, caring towards his friend but fastidious right like oh yeah i definitely didn't get none that of no, no 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 i there's cruelty too, I got like, right but i yeah, think yeah, both. i got like right. a young kid who's been has been put in charge for the first time and he's the hall monitor and he's not a horrible kid he's not like a you know he doesn't light ants on fire he doesn't uh um you know, he doesn't put tax on his sister's seat. He's not an evil child, but you, but he's insecure and he's uncertain and you make him the hall monitor for the first time. And, uh, he's going to so want to exert his power that he's going to end up being officious in like a minorly tyrannical way, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's what I get from the George yeah. character. But even then he's, there's something. Um, he seems uns- it's all sort of tentative in a certain way. Even when he's yeah. super mannered, there's something not quite right. Then the father is a lunatic, but you don't doubt it. You know, like he's there's, <laughs> there's a sureness to it. Yeah. So one way I often think about these sort of. Um, the way that relationships seem to work in Kafka is it's, and, and this is both what's haunting because I think there is a truth to it, but it's also um, it, the absurdity is part of what creates the comedy is, is that it, it functions like a sort of zero sum system. So that means that, I mean, the, the passage that one of the other of you read where, you know, the, uh, the father has sort of absorbed the mother's energy or whatever, you know, so, so there's some kind of idea that there's like a limited pool, right. That, that the family partakes of. And as soon as one assumes too much of it, then that is necessarily damaging to the others. And you see this in the metamorphosis, right. When the sort of backstory of, of Gregor's metamorphosis is essentially that this sort of disaster befell the family and he, took on this great responsibility, but similarly to, to George in this, he was in some sense, I mean, he was resented because of his becoming the hall monitor as you, uh, as you just described it, Jake. Um, and so, you know, th- these power relations are, and, and it, it applies to his relationship with the friend who is a kind of double where, you know, his, he can only conceive of his engagement as something that would be harmful to his friend because somehow his, um, his having obtained this sort of rite of passage, um, is fundamentally, uh, a sign that his friend has not right. That, that those two things are, are inseparable. Right. They're not, um, 
and and so he can't really conceive of it in any other way and and the father's you know vision of things is really uh you know a, a full confirmation of that right that that um you know George's um sort of ascent in the world is treated as both a betrayal and a kind of almost act of, of, I mean, as the act of usurpation, um, but also as a, as almost an act of sort of violence and, and harm against him. So, so there is the zero sum logic where, where there can't be, um, you know, only one person can kind of get the goods in some sense. And, and by doing that, they, they take it away from the other person. I'm having this flashback to, um, there's a, a late Francis Ford Coppola movie, which is sort of beautiful, but not fully realized called Tetro with uh, Vincent Gallo stars in it. And then there's a very beautiful woman and a young actor who I can't remember. Uh, but it's about this uh, young prodigal son's conflict with his father in a sense. And there was some interview uh, that Gallo did and he's talking about transcending the father and the idea of, of trying to transcend the father and that in his own experience, I think he says he grew up in Buffalo and he's like, you know, I knew these Jewish kids and their parents were pharmacists and they wanted the kid to be a surgeon or if the, if the, the father owned the hardware store, he wanted the son to be a banker or whatever. And then he's saying like how his own father was, uh, I can't remember what his father did for a living, but he was like, you'll never be as good as me. You know, like whatever I do, <laughs> you'll never be as good as me. And don't you ever forget that. And I know it. Mm -hmm. And your mother knows it. And your sisters know it. And you'll go to your grave knowing. And, you know, Gal is a kind of, uh, seems like a relatively maladjusted guy in certain ways, but you could see where that comes from. And he's a very good actor. Um, but it, it reminds me of that. And, that's terrifying, you know, mm -hmm. like I, the, the older I get, the more I realize that the real, all real horror, Gothic horror, Baroque horror, whatever, if it's horrifying, it always has to do with the family on some level. Yeah. You yeah. know? <sighs> so should, I, should I tell you uh, Kafka's explanation of the judgment? Oh yeah. I didn't know he provided him. So he wrote a letter so the judgment is 1912 written soon after he had um, met his fiance. They never got actually married, but, uh, and then he had this burst of creativity. We wrote the judgment uh, in like a single segment, uh, single sitting. And it was like sort of, it's the beginning of like his period of, of major works so and sort of his breakthrough. So he writes a letter to Felice dated June 2nd, 1913. And this is what he writes. Can you discover any meaning in the judgment? Some straightforward, coherent meaning that one could follow? I can't find any, nor can I explain anything in it. <laughs> oh, wow. Wait, sorry, read that again? <laughs> can you discover any meaning in the judgment? Some straightforward, coherent meaning that one could follow? I can't find any, nor can I explain anything uh, in it. All right. I feel very validated in my initial reading of it there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's just uh, it's just like his own worst nightmare coming true. You know, it's like mm -hmm. all of his worst nightmares, one after the other. Um, it seems to me, and it, and maybe they were more acute or they felt more intimate for him. But 
those are nightmares that are universal, I think. And um, if you have, you know, if you have like decent loving parents, you, um, you sort of absorb them or reconcile them. And if your parents um, give you reason to suspect that life is zero sum, like Jeff was talking about, and that whatever space you occupy is space you stole from somebody else and that yeah. somebody else can't have, then, then you're horrified by the, by the act of being a human being and taking up space in the world and going through the stations of life. Um, yeah. I was going to bring up, um, so I see the, the passage about, um, this, you know, which, which seems quite digressive, um, where he's, he's trying to remind his father of the friend before the father has revealed the truth. Um, and he has this, uh, story about the Russian revolution where it's, um, you yeah. know, when he was on a business trip to Kiev and ran into a riot and saw a priest on a balcony who cut a broad cross in blood on the palm of his hand and held the hand up and appealed to the mob. And then he says the father to the father, you've told that story yourself once or twice since. Hmm. And then um, in some way, I thought the priests uh, cutting his hand was echoed by the, the father's scar when he's exposed. Um, you, know, you see his, his war wound um, when he lifted up his shirt so high, you could see the scar and his thigh from his war wound. But um I did find that reference to revolution and this obviously being the 1905 revolution, it would seem um, quite, you know, it, it suggested that there, there is a kind of um, a political dimension to this, right. That, that in some sense, George is himself uh, a kind of revolutionary, right. Of sorts who has, in a sense, kind of overthrown his father and established a new regime, a sort of fragile new regime. Um, and, and, you know, you can almost see the father as the, on one level, this kind of ancien regime with almost like a droit de seigneur, right. With the, the whole thing about him cuckolding him with, with Frida and so on, um, is sort of reestablished. Um, so I don't know, there's something about, the father's um, affinity for, or in some sense, I mean, fascination with this figure of the priest. And it's, it's unclear whether the priest is a, a revolutionary or counter-revolutionary priest from the phrasing of it. It's, you know, he, um, the priest was appealing to the mob. So was he appealing to them to stop rioting mm. or was he riling them up? Um, but I don't know that, that sort of little, you know, it's, it's the only place where we have some sense of, um, I don't know, current events or the state of the world in the sort of backdrop of the story. Yeah. And, uh, it, it just strike me as interesting. Yeah. yeah. I got the war wound, uh, pie, that the way you put that together is compelling. Um, right, but he, he doesn't just show the war wound. It, it's, it's, it doesn't just happen. Right. He's talking about his, <laughs> my son, the gentleman has decided to get married. Mm. Um, 
And then he says, right, no, look right. at me. He goes, because yeah. she right. hoisted up her right. skirts, yeah. Yeah. the father began in an effective tone, because she hoisted up her skirts like this with a repulsive goose. And in order to imitate the action, he raised his right. shirt so right. high one could see the scar from his war years on his thigh, which is like a sort of kind of doubly emasculating the sun. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and again, there he's being the com- he's being yeah. the comedian. You know, he's 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 engaged yeah. in this kind of grotesque performance. Um, right. But you know, it does it, it gives us a glimpse into some some sense that the father yeah. carries with him some some sort of power that goes beyond anything that that George is able to achieve, right? Because George is not a he's a gymnast, right? But he's not a He's not a veteran. He's not. He's not somebody who we imagine having, you know, been in the battlefield. So, but I, I'm going to have to run uh, mm. at a certain point uh, pretty soon. But why did you pair this with Marcusa? That's a good question. Uh, I mean, Jake sort of told me it it only needed to be very loose, if if at all, uh, you know, clear of a pairing. So. So I, I more just chose it because it had been on my mind recently and I, I like it a lot. But um, I mean, I'd say more because of the, I mean, you brought up the Benjamin essay on Kafka, you know, the, there's a kind of uh, cultural lineage that um, would bring these two texts together, right? The, the sort of well, yeah, because the, the, the sort of, German family totalitarianism yeah. that he depicts Absolutely. here mm-hmm. and is is later the the bureaucratic state yeah. right it's the uh, same it's, yeah. you know it's, it's the, the same authoritarian thing. personality uh, yeah yeah and the father mm-hmm. I would also say that the sort of notion of and this is you know we we were talking about Marcuse's sort of troubling and naive belief that you can sort of simply delineate the forces of, you know, progress yeah. and the forces of, you know, repression. Um, and, you know, the thing that I love about this is you have a sense that the judgment is unjust and just at the same time. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's well put. Um, and, <laughs> and, and that's, that's rather the problem of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, trying to figure out how to go about with a liberatory politics um, uh, <laughs> in, in the kind of state that that uh, that Kafka later later shows in 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 you know stuff like the trial of the castle, but but which is kind of prefigured here in this very intimate setting. Yeah, you know, Phil, you said something to me in a text that was very astute about um, we'd been talking about Edgar Allan Poe on a previous, I guess, it was a Patreon episode, and Poe, in addition to his fiction, you know, developed these. Um, really fascinating theories of literary composition. And mm-hmm. one of, one of Poe's central ideas was that the purpose of a story is to produce a, an aesthetic effect, not a meaning, but an aesthetic effect. And I was saying, I think I had said something at the time, like who else has ever done it like that? And then Phil texted me and said, Flannery O'Connor. I was like, oh yeah, you know, it, it, it snapped when, um, when he said that, and I realized, oh, there are all these stories actually where there is something very similar going on. I think, Phil, the one you mentioned was Parker's Back, right? But there are yeah. others, you know, like the Lame Shall Enter First and um, these stories where it's not like 
sometimes people good country people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> people talk about O'Connor sometimes like these stories lead to epiphanies, but they're not epiphanies, you know, nobody is there's no realization, you know, there's a moment, there's a terrifying moment. Um, and that moment is a feeling and that feeling is reflective of something essential in the, in the condition of like the soul of the world, you know? Um, and I was thinking with, with I, this, I, I, one of my, one of my most important sort of experiences as like a high school student, I was in this group called Kiro where we would read religiously inflected literature. And then we would also sort of volunteer. And the idea was to kind of marry uh, kind of Catholic intellectual formation with practical action in the world. And we were reading a Flannery O'Connor story, a circle in the fire. And, you know, we'd been raised to like decode text to like extract the theme, which then allows the sort of, you know, experience of the story to be safely discarded. Um, and, and we couldn't really do it. Right. We were just flailing about and the teacher uh, who, you know, moderated this group, John Connolly was great great teacher was like, all right, guys, stop. This story was an experience. What was that experience like? And that, as a way of engaging with fiction, like opened up this different world for me. It was like, oh, yes, that's why I like reading. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's, there's like all this stuff you can, you can, you can pull from something like this, but it doesn't, it, 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 uh, and I think where you're going is that this story has a similar kind of power, right? That it doesn't, it doesn't reduce. In that no, way. it doesn't reduce in that way. But the other thing is that it doesn't, you know, it, what both Poe and O'Connor tend to do is build up to a final moment that crystallizes the effect. And you could say that this does this as well. But, um, while there is the final moment here, it's like fully two thirds of the story that produces an effect and that just vibrates it at different frequencies for the remainder of the story. And you're sort of suspended yeah. in that effect. And um, yeah, it, it felt uh, similar in that way though. The, it's done almost more. It's even harder for me to see how it works here. Like I, I understand how Poe does it structurally. I understand how O'Connor does it. This to me feels less a matter of a less a matter of form and more a matter of a kind of unmediated expression of uh, a nightmare, you know. Mm. <laughs> all right, this is great, guys. Listen, let me say, uh, Jeff. First of all, thank you for coming on. Uh, also, so I, I have a um. A piece that I don't know if this episode will come out before or after, but something coming out in tablet in the next few weeks um, on the disinformation complex and the techno surveillance state, for lack of a better word at the moment, um, that I actually wrote in early December before uh, the madness of the last month and a half, but that deals with some of these questions um, that we were talking about here and elaborates on the, the kind of historical background in um, some of the mergers between the U.S. intelligence agencies and certain 
uh, nonprofit enterprises. Anyway, it's coming out soon. So I, I would, uh, encourage people to look out for that. And, um, yeah, that's it. I basically, I wanted to plug that cause that's, I think probably mm-hmm. the last big piece I'll write for a while. So I think it'll be, it'll have something to do with disinformation in the title, please. It might already be out by the time you're hearing this, but look out for it. Jeff, any final thoughts? Um, just to plug as well. Uh, I think if people haven't um, encountered this piece I wrote on critical theory and the right, uh, that I wrote on my blog, Outsider Theory. Um, that might be a, a fruitful follow-up um, since we did refer to it some, and it does definitely overlap with a great deal of what we discussed. So, Yeah, I would highly, highly recommend that. Jeff's blog is uh, full of good stuff. And that's, Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. That's a very insightful essay. You, you explained something about Breitbart's relationship to uh, – to the Frankfurt school stuff in a way that, uh, you know, it, it's something I had thought a lot about and yet I, I felt like you really actually led me to a new understanding of it. So, um, I don't want to spoil it, but go to uh, outsider theory and you'll find that. And also, um, Jeff wrote a great piece for tablet that I, I wrote the headline for, so I should really remember it, but something about Twitter and sacrificial, um, oh, yeah, what was the was title? Do you remember? Human, human sacrifice and the digital business model, I believe. Exactly. Human yeah. sacrifice <laughs> and the digital business model, which is um, I, not only is it deeply insightful, uh, Girardian reading of social media, it's also continually uh, refreshed by the blood of some new sacrifice. So, mm. uh, the ground there continues to get, um, it's fertile ground. Uh, and you know, I was just thinking, like, there was some author who, no, a publisher who got, uh, fired this week because they tweeted that they were going on parlor or something like that. And, uh, it was a literary agent, I believe. Literary agent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I just, you know, I try to explain this to people. Actually, I don't want to mention the person, but Phil, I know you got to go. I'll just say quickly that when these things come up, right, a different person got canceled, uh, as you will, a person who a lot of people don't like. uh, It's a libertarian guy. It was like a mini controversy for a second. And I was talking to somebody I like who's very smart about it. I I was saying to this guy, you know, we, we were sort of talking about the, the stuff relating to this particular person. And I was saying, yeah, but you know, if you pull back from it, it's not about this person. It's like Twitter wins and we all lose in every one of these cases. Mm -hmm. Who's ever been canceled, your little victory for the left or for the right or for whatever group is, uh, you know, those are the crumbs that keep you coming back to the table. But meanwhile, it's the platform that benefits and the rest of us grow weaker and more, um, more reliant and more bot like with every one of these episodes. So anyway, uh, <laughs> thank you both. Check out, uh, Jeff's blog, outsider theory. Phil, you got anything you want to plug? Uh, you know, <laughs> 
I wrote a novel last year, so check out Missionaries. That's, that's check out Missionaries. That's, that's, that's my favorite. A novel that has been, uh, I think you've gotten glowing reviews everywhere at this point. So, But also the point is that if you don't buy Phil's novel, don't listen to the podcast anymore. We don't want you. Uh, <laughs> get lost, kick rocks, and uh, and also please continue to be a person. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius.